I think a lot about um, the relationship between food and language, and I think we have a pretty uh, solid understanding of the way in which language travels with migrants and immigrants, and also of the way in which language or attachment to a native or traditional or heritage language may uh, attenuate. Um, over time and over generations. I think something that's really interesting to me about food is that that process is not as linear. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. To round out our season on crossing, we turn to food. When people cross borders, the food and recipes they bring with them are an important part of their journeys. This is one of the oldest truths about migration, that culture also travels, and it's a way of maintaining ties to homeland. But cuisines also change as they move and mix. These ideas came into stark relief during the COVID-19 pandemic, when border closures and enforced lockdowns meant that people were unable to travel across international borders. So many people were unable to connect with relatives abroad. The strain on supply chains made it harder to obtain some products. And we saw global recognition of farm workers and service industry workers as essential workers the often invisible yet suddenly fundamental labor of people harvesting produce and grain and preparing and delivering groceries and meals. In this episode, we're celebrating the release of a new volume that attends to the multiple ways we connect with food across borders and how immigrants made do when those connections were challenged during the pandemic. Resilient Kitchens, American Immigrant Cooking in a Time of Crisis is out with Rutgers University Press this is a book of essays and recipes edited by Philip Gleisner and Harry Eli Cashton with contributions by immigrant chefs from around the country. And before we get into this conversation, let me just say that this is a gorgeous book with drawings and photographs accompanying the essays and recipes. And if you're able to look through it while listening to this episode or check out a couple of the images on our show notes, that will give you a feel for the spirit behind this book. And actually, producer Megan DeMitt and I so enjoyed spending time with these essays that we decided to try out a couple of the recipes in preparation. So we're bringing you this conversation with the smiles and satisfaction of a delicious meal. One of the dishes we tried is the malfouf, or stuffed cabbage rolls, by Palestinian food writer Reem Kassis. Reem joined me for this conversation, along with both Philip and Harry, the volume's editors. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about what the pandemic taught us about the connection between foodways and borders. You'll hear Reem read from her contribution to the volume, a section where she describes finally returning to Jerusalem during a period when she's preparing for a photo shoot for her next cookbook. And you'll find that this conversation with Reem, Philip, and Harry is about so much more than the pandemic. It's about the relationship between food, place, movement, and belonging. Congratulations on the book. It's amazing and beautiful. And um, yeah, I have enjoyed reading it and now rereading the pieces that each of you wrote. 
Could you each just introduce yourselves quickly for our listeners? Hi, my name is Philip Gleisner. I'm an assistant professor of Slavic and East European languages and cultures at The Ohio State University. And I wear many hats in terms of research and teaching, but my main hat is actually that I'm a researcher of print periodicals and uh, media history in socialist Eastern Europe. And this may sound really unrelated, but much of it is about how these periodicals traveled across borders and how people attach different meanings and political um, agendas to them. And so actually it is one of many cultural forms that traveled uh, across borders and and formed communities and were important to um, these communities. And in that way, I think it's very similar to food that too kind of travels and then becomes meaningful in new and interesting ways. Hi, I'm Harry Eli Kasdan. My uh, academic training is in um, uh, food and migration in the the discipline of comparative literature, um, working mostly on a contemporary Mediterranean context. And now I am uh, currently in training as an asylum officer at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Hi, uh, I'm Reem Kassis. I'm a Palestinian food and culture writer. Uh, since I'm with two academics, I can mention that my academic training has nothing to do with food or with writing. <laughs> um, it's in business and psychology, but um, about six, seven years ago, I made the transition into food writing. Uh, it started with my Palestinian cookbook. And since then, you know, I've published a couple more books uh, and I write regularly for newspapers and media outlets. Uh, I focus specifically on food and culture, but the angle is often how it's related to national identity, uh, you know, the notions of home, how we find meaning through food and the power of food. You're, um, you're bringing up immediately this connection between food and place, which comes through so readily in the volume. And I wonder before, I mean, this is a volume that is a kind of intimate glimpse in many ways into life in the pandemic. One of the things I appreciated about it is that the ways in which the different essays really resonate broadly with experiences that I think many of us, you know, can can recognize, but there are also these really intimate personal accounts of, um, of that time. But before we delve into the pandemic aspects of this, I wonder if we could start just by um, talking about this, the significance of this relationship between food, migration, and place. So for me, it is very personal, actually, because I left Jerusalem when I was 17 uh, and I came to the U.S. for undergrad. And I was very adamant at the time to stay as far away from food as possible, actually. Uh, I wrote about this in my cookbook, but someone had said to my father at one point, oh, you're wasting your money sending her to the U.S. for school. Don't you know she's going to end up in the kitchen like all Arab women do anyway? So that angered me, but it also pushed me, you know, to prove myself in a domain that was as far removed from the kitchen as possible, something that I saw at the time as this like curse or this, you know, this fate of Arab woman that I wanted to prove was inaccurate. But soon enough, as anyone can attest, who's been forced to leave their home, whether by choice or by circumstance, is food is one of the ways that we maintain that connection, because food is one of the only things that uses all of our senses. So it's not just taste, but it's sight, it's smell, it's, you know, you, all these senses that evoke in you memories that no other thing in the world possibly can. And I experienced that firsthand. 
Yeah, I smelled za'atar, I think it was a couple of weeks into uh, my undergrad that my mother had packed in my bag and I felt like I was back in her kitchen again. And I think that was the first instance I realized food could be powerful, but I fought it. I fought it for many years, refusing to admit it. And it took, you know, the birth of my first daughter to find my way back to it. And again, it was this desire to give her a sense of belonging in a world that was very transient. I was raising her in London you know, in a Palestinian family that was far removed from Palestine and in a place where I could see our food being dubbed as Israeli in many locations. And I just wanted to, I say set the record straight, but more of just give her a glimpse of what it means to be Palestinian and what this food means for our culture. And from there, you know, a lot of other things happened. But to me, it was always very clear that food is more than just sustenance. It's it's filled with memories. It, it speaks to a culture, to a history that, especially for Palestinians, when you feel so much of it slipping between your hands, it's a way almost to hold on to it. If not physically, then at least emotionally and psychologically. Reem, am I recalling correctly that your mother kept you out of the kitchen when you oh, were yeah. growing up? She did. She always, you know, I like to cook and experiment as a little kid. We're talking here. And she would always say, just leave, just go study. Like, what are you doing in the kitchen? This isn't for you. Of course, when you're told not to do something as a kid, you really want to do it. And anytime she left the house, I would like sneak into the kitchen and bake a cake and leave a mess behind. But, you know, uh, I didn't actually start cooking, really cooking till I left home. This question of the way people who leave the places they're from carry food with them, I think was sort of the kernel uh, or, or the core of the research that I, I did as an academic and, and continue to do from from my current um, my current perspective. I think a lot about um, the relationship between food and language, and I think we have a pretty uh, solid understanding of the way in which language travels with migrants and immigrants, and also of the way in which language or attachment to a native or traditional or heritage language may uh, attenuate um, over time and over generations. I think something that's really interesting to me about food is that that process is not as linear, right? So we know that migrants take food with them, but that thing that happens with language where fluency turns into slang, turns into scattered vocabulary, I don't think we see that in the same way with food. I think there's more of a, a sort of sinus curve of approach and retreat and approach and retreat, um, or, or maybe even like a dialectical process between the food of home and the food of the adopted country and, and the ways in which those things can become synthesized over in individuals' life, but also over generations. One thing I noticed with immigrants is they lose the language, they lose the traditions, they lose the music, the culture, so much of it, but the food actually doesn't disappear as quickly. And I don't know if you've seen that in your work, like you will have third or fourth generation immigrants who can name every dish on the table from their culture, but they can't say another single word in that language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that happens that I've noticed, at least in, in literary documents about this, is that the food retreats from the everyday but in retreating from the heritage food, I mean, retreats from the everyday, but in doing so, it becomes solidified as part of ceremonial and festive tables. Um, and that lends it a permanence that maybe language can't have or, or doesn't have. Um, so even if you're not eating majadra every day, it's going to appear on the holiday table and 
it will continue to on the children's and the grandchildren's, even if they're not speaking Arabic. And I, I see that a lot in the, this really selective preservation and attachment of values to food. When I teach a class here on Eastern European culture in the Midwest, which I teach about every year, and it attracts a lot of students of Polish heritage, Slovak heritage, and so forth. And we always talk about food because it's really accessible to everyone. Everyone knows to talk about food more than about literature or, or whatever. And one of the big things the Polish students always talk about is ponczki, which to me, I said that recently at a conference in front of Polish colleagues who were slightly aggravated to this, which to me is just another donut. And a donut to me is a donut. And, and I made it even worse. I said, yeah, they're basically the same ones that we serve in Germany for New Year's. Um, but I think it really is interesting how these individual things become then kind of part of an individual uh, of an individual community's experience. And for them, they're uh, uh, much more meaningful in new ways. And on the one hand, we have something that unites us all because we all eat donuts. And on the other hand, it becomes kind of a celebration of cultural heritage in this selective way. Well, let's talk about the volume. So um, a lot of these broader ideas about connections between migration, place, identity, you're also talking about these intergenerational um, aspects of, of food and how people make these connections through the table, through community gathered around food too. Um, this comes up in so many different ways in the essays in the volume. And I'd love to hear Philip and Harry from you about how this volume took shape a little bit about the process. Um, it's a really unique kind of collection. It's, um, I mean, to me, these seem like personal essays, but of course each one is also paired with a recipe. So yeah, I'd just love to hear a little bit about the process and how this emerged, especially during the pandemic. Uh, I can start and Philip can correct the record when I <laughs> uh, <laughs> inevitably misremember things. Um, so we were presented with an opportunity, basically. Um, what first was uh, kind of catastrophic on national and global and um, personal scales uh, was transformed into an opportunity by the vicissitudes of uh, how university funding cycles work. So basically, um, we both had other grant applications in process uh, in early 2020. Um, we were both we, we both had our eyes on other things. And Philip can tell you about his project. Mine was about um, I was hoping to bring immigrant chefs in Columbus. I was working at Ohio State at the time. I was hoping to bring immigrant chefs in Columbus into my classroom. Uh, and I was applying for for money to develop a course that would allow me to do that. Um, when the pandemic hit and the university uh, went on an extended break and, and switched to virtual for the remainder of the semester, um, one of the decisions that was made at a very high level was to cancel current grant cycles. Um, so everything that was in process, all the things we had applied for and planned, we were told that's not happening anymore. Uh, and instead, they offered a pool of money for work dealing with COVID. Um, you know, we didn't know at the time how big COVID was going to be. Uh, and I think our reactions were in some ways a little bit skeptical. Um, we felt interrupted. Uh, we felt that the university was trying to ride a trend. Um, from our current perspective, it seems incredibly far-sighted of them to have realized uh, uh, that this was going to be a thing and they needed to help faculty engage with it. So um, Philip and I 
both had grants that that were canceled and we you know we're, we're talking with each other a lot from our, our various remote places um and in those early days one of the, the maybe the two most um uh salient features of the pandemic were one uh uh lockdown restrictions on the ability to move and two um empty spaces in grocery store shelves uh and this is what every new york times article it felt like for weeks was about you can't find flour you can't find yeast americans mm. are discovering sourdough right i i was already researching food and migration philip was researching migration in a different context and we were struck over and over and over again about the ways in which newspaper headlines really seem to be bringing these things together so um those were our areas of expertise as well and we saw a real opportunity for a humanistic project um thinking about how immigrants in the American context, um, in our local Columbus context as well, were grappling with this. People whose lives in some ways uh, are structured by mobility and the restrictions on it, and whose identities are often structured around culinary culture. Um, how are they being impacted? Uh, we also felt, I think, and, and continue to feel the weight of the privilege that we had at that moment, especially in contrast to people in particularly the food service sector. Um, our university jobs were secure. Uh, we were going to continue to get paid. And on top of that, we were being offered grant money to do extra things. And a, a real concern for us was, a, was how we could be ethical and conscientious in taking advantage of that. So the decision that we made was to try to create a platform for other people to tell their stories. I think um, maybe to add to that record a little, it, it sounds like it was kind of an act of pivoting. And actually we have a couple of contributors in, in our volume that say, oh, I hate that word pivoting. If I have to hear that one more time, because that was part of the experience, especially in the food industry during the COVID pandemic, where over and over, um, or at the height of the COVID pandemic, where over and over they were changing public health regulations and changing rules for what you could do in terms of takeout, outdoor dining, and so forth. So uh, I think there's also a different uh, angle that emerged as we did this project, and that has to do with the whole idea of, um, well, what really matters and what mattered during the COVID pandemic, at least to me at the time, if I think of April 2020, um, it seemed a little bit like the world was ending and it seemed a little bit like all the things that we did before in academic research, although we were so convinced that they're important and, and meaningful, seemed irrelevant. I mean, who, who cares about these East European networks of literary journals or, or what have you in the 20th century? Certainly, they explained to us how totalitarianism works and whatnot. But at the end of the day, nothing seemed important anymore. Um, and at the same time, there was that urge to think about the, the COVID moment, because part of that experience was that over and over, we felt or we told each other that this was unprecedented and no one knew what to do and no one reacted appropriately. Um, and we had this whole resistance to the lockdowns. Um, I lived next to the state house at the time, so I was very aware of the resistance that showed up there every every Saturday with guns and whatnot. Um, 
But at the same time, we felt like this was a project of the or product of the erasure of cultural memory of past pandemics. Uh, we are now aware that there was such a thing as the influenza pandemic of 1918. Um, but it had all but it had been forgotten. People don't like to remember. I think humans hate to remember uh, statistics of death tolls. And so plus, I think the human psyche is also not prepared to think of large numbers of uh, people dying. That's not something we can process. Um, humans don't like to look at um um makeshift pandemic wards where uh, people are dying these things are then erased but the one thing that people are i think we're always and we saw that in the pandemic because everyone did that on instagram and and on on youtube and we're not everyone wants to talk about food so talking about food for us was really a way to create a record of this experience beyond the statistic uh, where everyone could engage in a way and we actually this volume is accompanied by a um, community archive, a digital community archive that's called the, the COVID Food Archive, where people can post their stories about food and post their photos from uh, pandemic cooking and share recipes that we and we developed this over uh, the last two years. Um, again, trying to also create this record in ways that really broadly can um, engage anyone um, that is interested in this topic. Thanks. And yeah, I was thinking about this. I love that you brought us to the place of record because the volume does offer a kind of intimate record that captures some of the broader questions and sort of shared experiences that everyone was having, but then also gets into the really intimate personal details of people's lives, what what the authors were going through. So for listeners, I keep looking over here because I have it right here in front of me, <laughs> but for listeners who aren't holding the book right now, um, could you just give us a brief sort of sense of some of the range of what is included in the volume? We have, there are so many different perspectives. People are presenting different places and also different different kinds of recipes, cuisine. We tried to to get contributions from people whose life and work touches food in a really wide variety of ways. So, um, restaurateurs, chefs. Uh, academics, food writers, food justice activists. We wanted to be broad um, in terms of geographic coverage of the nation, in terms of professional background, in terms of uh, coverage of the world, although that's, you know, it's one book, <laughs> it can include everything. But we did try to get um, people from a, from a really wide variety of places and backgrounds and perspectives. Thanks. And expertises. Um, we, we, had, we had a lot of contributors who, who, their first reaction was, well, I'm not a writer. And we said, yeah, okay, that's not the point. Like, we're going to help you through it. And we want to hear from from more than just people like us. So Reem, could you help take us into the book itself? I wonder if you could share a little bit about what your essay is about. Um, and then we'd love to hear a selection of the essay. So I don't even know if I would call it an essay, to be honest. I think it's more of like a diary entry. <laughs> and I remember I went back and forth with uh, Harry and Philip on this. We were trying to figure out, you know, what would be the best contribution from uh, my end. And one thing I noticed is I knew that COVID in hindsight would be this 
big thing that we all remembered, but how much of the details would we actually hold on to, given that it was such a time warp and everything, you know, every day was much of the same. You're repeating it. You're all stuck at home. You're doing the same things. And I wanted to find a way to remember and hold on to the everything that happened during COVID, you know, the good and the bad. And this is what my essay does. It breaks down that year into bite-sized increments by month. And every month it details, it takes a specific angle to each month, right? You know, it's not just a running diary entry um, as I quipped before, but it's more of, you know, the issue of quarantining or the issue of food being related to our identity and community and whatnot. Um, And you start to build this picture in your mind of what COVID is like, but also of how food impacts every single aspect of our lives. And I talk about this in one of the final sections of my essay where food was the way that I'd remained connected to my culture in you know, the decades since I'd left home. But suddenly when I wasn't able to build a community around it and share it with people that mattered, it ceased to hold that magic for me that it had for so long. Um, and then you also you know we touched on the issue of borders and As a Palestinian, obviously, the issue of borders has always been very prominent in my life, whether it's, you know, you cannot go from the West Bank into Israel, or as a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship, I cannot go into Arab countries. But I was always around my immediate family and the people that I loved the most. But COVID was the first time in my life where I suddenly did not have the freedom to be around those people. Like I was with my husband and my daughter. So that was the most important thing. But my parents who were aging and living in Jerusalem, I could no longer visit them when I wanted to. And I had to cancel flights. And I talk about this in the book. June, the month of quasi-quarantines. Traveling in and out of Israel has always been a source of anxiety for me. I may have been an Israeli citizen on paper, but I was Palestinian by blood and birth, which relegated me to the number six security category, the strip search line, the additional interrogations. Basically, the royal second-class citizen treatment. The brightest threads of travel in the tapestry of my recollections are frayed. They are frayed by fear, indignance, and anger at injustice. They are woven through my trips in and out of my home country in which an occupying power would take any measure to make me feel unwelcome. Still, it is my home. It is where my roots run deep. It is where I continue to return even as the journey wounds my pride. This time, however, COVID-19, at least momentarily, seemed to present a greater risk than the Palestinian mother with two young children arriving at an empty Ben-Gurion airport. As we passed through security on our way in, the only questions revolved around our body temperatures and quarantine locations. I gave Border Patrol the address of my family's home, Abdul Rahman al-Dajani Street, Beit Hanina. She asked for a house number, and it took every ounce of control for me to not crack a joke. We had only received street names a few years back. I myself wasn't sure what our house number was. In the end, it was a pointless question because she could not find our street in her system anyway. We settled for a vague address of Jerusalem followed by a phone number. Someone will be coming to check on you periodically to make sure you're quarantining, she informed me, so make sure you do. I nodded my head and walked out into arrivals. 
My girls ran toward my father and balked a foot away from him, hands outstretched. Mama said we can't hug you for two weeks. Oh, don't listen to her, he chuckled, then squeezed them both, his smile, in spite of being hidden by a mask, betrayed by the folding accordions around his eyes, compressed more than I had seen them in a very long time. I had wondered throughout the previous months what must be going through the minds of the elderly. My parents, initially afraid, had been pushing us to come, telling us not to worry about them. If given the choice, would a grandparent want to go a year without seeing their grandkids, or would they risk their health for the pure pleasure that was the cuddle of a child who gave their life meaning? Was it a question of quantity versus quality of life? Was it even a zero-sum game? Had the tables shifted and were children now forced to become the responsible parties, making decisions on behalf of parents, enforcing separation in the name of preservation? I wish the answers were clear. I wish there was a right or wrong way to do things, but it seemed to me it was like the insurance industry. No guarantees, all about statistics and mitigating risk. We had all taken precautions for two weeks before leaving Philadelphia and kept on N95 masks throughout the empty flight. Still, I kept my distance from my parents those first few days. No hugs or kisses, sitting at the far end of the dining table, windows always open. Looking back, I'm not sure who was deluding whom, had any of us been ill with the virus, our methods of quarantining would have certainly still provided ample room for transmission. But right or wrong, family is the most revered unit in Arab society, and the idea of separation for protection struck us as counterintuitive. Less than 24 hours after arriving, the house phone rang. Is Reem Cassis available? The voice on the other end asked. It was police officers calling to ensure I was indeed home quarantining. My mother brought the phone to me and the gentleman on the line asked a few perfunctory questions. I need to see you to make sure you are home, he finished. Okay, just make a left at the first roundabout and we're the second house up the hill, I explained. He refused. My house was in an Arab neighborhood and he did not want to drive up to it. Still, he insisted he must see me. But I could not leave the house since I was quarantining. Catch 22. I'll wave at you from the window, I finally suggested. The police officer parked on the main road separating our Arab neighborhood house from an Israeli settlement, waving to me through tree leaves. I opened the window and waved right back. The story repeated itself a few times during those first two weeks, and then again two weeks later when my brother arrived. Was it not ironic that when it came to services and rights, Palestinian citizens of Israel were a demographic threat with second-class treatment, but when what happened to us could affect someone else in the country, we suddenly became an equal priority? Perhaps then the solution to the long-standing conflict was intertwining one population's positive outcomes with the others. I suspect this outlook might be too naive or hopeful, and soon after the threat of COVID-19 dissipates, we will reclaim our second-class status and its associated benefits. After all, decades of resentment stemming from feelings of unfairness and oppression do not dissipate overnight. Still, in the summer of 2020, as I flew home to work on my cookbook, it seemed like common threads could exist. Yes, those threads would always be pulled precariously taut, and a little tug would give rise to complicated feelings and questions. But that July, I focused on the sliver of hope, no matter how unwarranted. My photographer was an Israeli who, during the photo shoot, made his way from his home in Tel Aviv to ours in Jerusalem on a daily basis, often crashing in the guest room if the day of shooting had stretched too long. By the time my mandatory two-week quarantine was over, Summer was in full swing, and the photo shoot for my cookbook was finally set to start. 
yeah, there's so much in there about how the pandemic exacerbated um, so many tensions around borders and really brought them to the fore, um, especially, of course, uh, in the case that you talk about, about um, about being Palestinian, about trying to move uh, between, you know, move in and out of the U.S. also at that time. Uh, how about you, Philip, in terms of thinking about how the pandemic has altered our relationship with food or idea about um, gathering around food? I think it really depends, right? There's so many people that are probably just back to what they were doing and try to erase any memory of the changes they had done during COVID, which also, again, goes back to the idea of our volume, you know, to not be, not allow for these memories to be erased. And at the same time, I think for me, there's some increased anxiety around food that persists and that has to do with again, a very unpopular opinion um, or thought that I have that that is not very nice to to share that is that this is probably not the last pandemic. Our world is organized and structured in a way that we are much more prone to experience these things um, due to global mobility and due to the way we manage and, and consume livestock. Um, I've gotten kind of anxious about cooking for people, baking for people, bringing them things. And and I still am somewhat anxious to to do that because I'm always thinking, well, what if I'm I'm making that person sick, right? What if I, and it's not even in my mind now, it's not even just COVID. I'm like, what if, what if I didn't handle the, the food safely and someone gets food poisoning for something? I mean, I've somehow accumulated that kind of anxiety. And I think it's a, embedded in a larger breakdown of intimacy, which is something we were interested in the volume and the way that truly disease and pandemics and uh, mostly the fears that come with it break down human intimacy. Um, so that has is still lingering for me. Gina's chapter in the volume, she writes really eloquently about that, the, the barriers to intimacy. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking too about how it's one of the contradictions or paradoxes about something like a pandemic that the very thing that would, and, and a very maybe simple thing that would bring comfort during a difficult time, like sharing a meal with somebody you're close to or bringing somebody food when they're not doing well is the, is a very risky act and something that got taken away from us. And one of the things that you talk about Reem that struck me so much was the lengths you were willing to go to get particular ingredients especially yeah. during the beginning of the pandemic. I think you talk about driving a couple of hours to get an eggplant, yeah. maybe. Yeah, we went to Allentown um, to buy kusa and eggplant. So very specific types of zucchini and uh, eggplants for stuffing. I mean, it's part of also that craving of a particular dish, right? Well, it was also a way to find comfort, right? Because I can't, you know, before I would cook anything and I would have friends over and you could bond over whatever dish you had made. But when it was just me and my husband and my daughters, I wanted something else to bond over. And so it was the dishes of my childhood that were done exactly the way my mother did them with the same kind of ingredients, even if I didn't like them. I think I wrote in there how I bought a head of cabbage and I stuffed it and I don't like stuffed cabbage. Um, I don't either. It's one of my child childhood kind of enemies. And, and I must admit, I ate in the process of taking the photos uh -huh. uh, for the volume. We made a lot of stuffed cabbage and I oh, ate a lot of it. I, I've actually gotten some greater appreciation for it now. Oh, the way you make the I'm German glad. stuffed cabbage is definitely less exciting than the one I grew up with. I love cabbage. 
I was popping Reem's recipe calls it, the rolls are they're so delicate and small they're they, they end up being quite poppable um so after we photographed I was like eating them like bar snacks just like oh, oh, yeah. so poppable, like one after another <laughs> yeah <laughs> probably okay so <laughs> my producer Megan and I got together and made your cabbage rolls oh, no, Reem, and we also made Harry's cake Philip, your bread is next on my list. How'd the cake um, come out? It was delicious. Also, was it, it's a very simple recipe. Was it too messy to serve? <laughs> no. It okay. crumbled I, a little bit. Like I'm it, going through agonistes about this recipe. Why? It would, I, I mean, I printed it, and I, I guess that means I have to stand behind it. But every time I make this cake, I think to myself, I wonder if I should have adjusted just a... Because it is so sticky. No. I don't know. No. It's no. wonderful. I thought it was delicious um but but reem if you don't like stuffed cabbage why did you choose cabbage rolls as the recipe for the book so i don't remember why um (laughs) it might be our fault actually because we said choose something choose something that is representative of your of your lockdown experience because i wrote about it in the book actually i wrote about the story Mm -hmm. of how I mean, I cooked that cabbage, even though I didn't want to eat it. But I saw one of those flat heads, which you don't find at Whole Foods or Wegmans. No, those are the only kinds of cabbage that you can find in like an Asian supermarket or an Arab one. And I was like, this is what my father buys. This is what my mother makes. And this is what I hate. But whenever she makes it and I hate it, she will make me another dish. And that kind of shows me how much she cares about me, that in spite of her insistence that you have to eat what I'm making, she would still make something else. And it's just, it's so intertwined in my mind. It's like all these uh, cables that cross with each other and just seeing that cabbage, suddenly I was like, this is home. I have to make it. And every time I think I'm going to make it, I'm going to like it this time. And actually, I mean, when I'm eating it, it tastes good. But in hindsight, I'm like, ugh, cabbage, and it smells, and this and that. But but to your point, <laughs> Philip, it's so funny, because I grew up hating cabbage. Um, and then I had an Eastern European, a Romanian version of it. And since then, I have fallen in love. And the only one of the main differences is they use brined cabbage instead of the uh, raw yeah. one. And that really tames down the scent. Um, and it's much more acidic. Something that I love about Reem's recipe, and I think I think of this at least as characteristic of Palestinian and Arab food, is that it takes a, a few things which are quite humble and a few techniques which are quite simple, and then in the the grouping of them together, and also in the preparation and 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 the cooking method, create something that's really spectacular and beautiful. Um, the the way that this is arranged in the pot and then inverted, and you end up with this gleaming pile and this beautiful geometry of cabbage. It, mm. Yeah, it, it, it's really quite a revelation. I think. I think you can say that about Arab food in general. It's mm. this is very much a cliched statement, but it's more than the sum of its parts. Like you always think, right. like how can bulgur and lentils and onions taste so good? But when you're making jadara, because you mentioned it before, Harry, I mean, just frying the onions past a certain point that really makes the difference and you know, how good something that's supposed to be simple tastes. But to your point about the cabbage not taking time, it's one of those dishes that traditionally you don't have one woman. I mean, yes, nowadays you do, but traditionally it was more than one woman working together at the same time. And I think that goes back to the point of, you know, COVID kind of deprived us of that. We were each eating in these silos, whereas a lot of our dishes were meant to be made and consumed in larger groups of people. And especially stuffing and rolling, um, 
cookies as well, especially ones that have dates stuffed in them, those are meant to be group efforts. Um, and I find they taste better when they're eaten that way. Part of what I think this volume brought out, and this is, I think, one of your questions that, that you had, was that also everything that we saw during the pandemic is not really, nothing of it was novel. If we look at all the kind of public health regimes and the way um, specific practices were policed, uh, say, for example, how street vendors were managed during the pandemic, all of that revealed patterns of, of bias that were uh, targeted against or, or stacked against immigrant communities. You know, the, the, uh, one of our contributors writes about this too, Tian Yuan, who really has that observation that, oh, well, we're okay with doing all these carry out and the outdoor dining options that are along the lines of traditional restaurants. But as soon as it's about grassroots street vendors, uh, we regulate them in very different ways that emerged during the pandemic, but it's something that has a long history in kind of how um, immigrant communities and their food ways were uh, treated by authorities in this country. So, and and the connection between these individual stories and these these greater questions, or as, as Reem showed, was something very generous to share of our contributors. And we feel very lucky that we actually got to do this book in this way, um, rather than that dry academic volume that we had initially envisioned. Yeah, I love how you've made space for um, individual writers' voices um, in, in this, in, you know, through this format. It's, it is a really beautiful book. Um, and I look forward to cooking more of these recipes. Thanks for listening to Migrations, A World on the Move, a podcast by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Brand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and with the hashtag Cornell Migrations. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migrations Postdoc at the Mario Inaudi Center for International Studies and produced by Megan DeMint. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize Cayuga Nation sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is Basically Really by Steve Fawcett. Migrations, A World on the Move is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.